Well, it's our privilege to come this morning to our time of worship where we study the Word of God together. And this morning we are in part four of this current series, which I have entitled Uncovering the Ugly Truth. Uncovering the Ugly Truth. We've begun a study of the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as we continue to unfold the truth of God among us this morning as we delve again into the reality of what this text says. And I was thinking about this this morning as I was pondering all that this text has for us, that, that it's obvious for us that we are gluttons for punishment, right? We, we are either forgetful people or we just love pain. Because these are painful words, aren't they? Even for us who know Jesus Christ, this is this is uh, like going into the gymnasium once a week, and and you work very hard, and your muscles get very filled with lactic acid, and and the next day you're you're sore, and and it it gets a little better each and every day, and then you go back to the gym, and it all is a reminder of what you just went through in the past, and that's what we have here in Romans. And I need to remind us that we've been learning, and for many of us it's an urgent reminder rather than something new, but it's a reminder of the ugly truth concerning the condition of man before God. That's really what we're seeing here as Paul begins to uh, give us the gospel. Uh, The understanding or the truth concerning Man, And in this text, we, we get the answer to the question as to why God is so angry in his continual wrath against man. Why is he justified in that? Because from our perspective in the human realm, there seems to be some sense of, of real justice in that. Man likes to think that he's not guilty, and yet we are guilty, and God is justified in his wrath against our guilt, and it is ugly truth. And I've called it ugly truth because it isn't necessarily the news that mankind desires to hear. We don't really like bad news, but in just the same, it is vitally necessary for every person to hear this and us included in the kingdom of God and more importantly for every human to heed. Much like waiting, if you will, anxiously by the phone for news from the doctor. Sometimes we go to see the doctor and they say, okay, we're going to run some tests and we wait anxiously by the phone for those tests. We, we really don't want the doctor at times to tell us the truth. We, we want whatever the phone call is going to be, we want it to be the truth in some ways, but if it's really bad news somehow in our hearts, we really don't want that. And there are times when that truth is just very hard to swallow. For that reason, here in Romans, this is ugly truth. Romans 1, God is brutally honest. He is giving us the truth about us. And the basic underlying reality concerning man is what I just said, that man is entirely guilty. Why? Because man has 
perverted the truth of God and manufactured for himself a God of his own making. This is the condition of humanity. The opening phrase, in fact, in verse 21 of chapter 1 clearly gives us the reason why man is an idolater. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. This is what Paul tells us, the inevitable outcome of man's rejection of God is the worship of a God in his own making. It is the worship of self. And we see that in verse 23. So God's wrath against man is not justified only because of the simple truth that God has clearly revealed himself, as we saw in the previous verses. God has made himself known to every man. Every man, every human being that has ever taken a breath in this world has a consciousness about God. Can I say something to us this morning? God is not an atheist. In fact, atheism is a myth. Because every man knows God. Atheism is simply a myth. God is an awe atheist. He, he doesn't believe in atheism. Regardless of what man says, God has revealed himself to each and every human that has ever lived. And so God's wrath is justified just for that alone, but also, as we learned last week, because man has clearly denounced any of that knowledge of God and thereby elevated himself as the one who has the answers to life. This is what God is telling us through the Apostle Paul in verses 18 through 22. God has clearly revealed himself. He has clearly made himself known. And man has clearly denounced that knowledge. And man, because of his denouncement of that knowledge, has thereby replaced God's wisdom with his own wisdom, with his own professed wisdom. Wiseness, verse 22. He professes to be all-knowing. He professes to have the wisdom that he needs. We are celebrating the Reformation uh, in a sense of, of just highlighting the reality of what that means in, in light of Christian history. And yet, the very same thing that is taking place here in Romans 1 was the same thing taking place in the Reformation that Martin Luther was, was arguing for. Martin Luther put it out in 95 uh, problems that he had with the, the Catholic Church, and yet the underlying reality was a problem with authority. Not Martin Luther's problem with authority, but an argument for the reality of who was going to rule the day. What voice was going to call the shots? What was going to be the authority? Was it going to be the Catholic Church and the traditions of men? Or was it going to be the Word of God? And this is the issue we see right here. It is an issue of ruling authority. You see, this is where all of us must begin 
when it comes to sharing the gospel of God with an individual who is lost. Why? Because that person already believes they are not lost. They have already convinced themselves through their rejection of the truth of God that they clearly know about that they are okay. It's a matter of authority. God's voice has no voice to them. Maybe I should say it another way. Every man, woman, every child must come to the realization that they are in fact guilty before a holy God. And that there is nothing they can do in and of themselves to rectify that problem. They are guilty. They cannot be saved if they do not come to that realization. If we do not expose the ugly truth as we share the gospel, if we as Christians who who on this side of glory uh, know Jesus Christ by faith because God has miraculously and graciously saved us by drawing us to Himself, if we jump too quickly in the, in the relaying of the gospel truth, if we jump too quickly to the love of God and leave out the guilt of man before God, if we go there in the gospel, then in the minds of men there is no need for a Savior. Men who are not guilty do not need someone to pay for their guilt. Man already believes that he is not lost. And so we need to help them understand their lostness. And so the result of progressive perversion of the truth, that's what I like to see about it. It's, it if you notice this, this decline of mindset, this is a a progressive perversion of the truth. It's a progressive degeneration farther and farther into idolatry. The result is that. And that is the fourth reason why God's wrath is justified. God's wrath is justified because of man's idolatrous religion. <laughs> Man's idolatrous religion, or you might even call it self-worship. Self-worship. Worship. What, what is worship? Worship is, is considering something worthy, right? Living with God as your constant life authority. Living with God as your constant life authority. We worship God when we study the Word of God because when we study the Word of God, we're saying we recognize, God, that Your Word is authoritative. Now, it's one thing to do that intellectually. One thing to say God's Word is authoritative. It's another thing to actually live constantly with God's Word as your authority. All of us Christians would say God's Word is authoritative. Even those that don't believe all of it is His Word. But the reality is, do we live as if it's authority? Or do we live in such a way whereby we are in fact practical 
What do I mean by that? Where we live as if the Word of God has no authority, as if God doesn't exist. In other words, His Word calls the shots. You don't call the shots. Science doesn't call the shots. Man's opinion isn't higher in your heart and in your mind and in your direction of life than God's Word is. God's Word has the highest authority. You see, this is the issue at hand here when it comes to man's religion. Each form of idolatry is reflected in countless religious systems that have been devised by men to replace the truth of God with a lie. To replace the authority of God with an authority of a different kind. And worship of that one true God with the worship of many different man-made gods. That's the issue. We could say that although man is not by his very nature godly, he is by his very nature religious. Man is a religious person. God made him that way. And he was created for worship, and yet man exchanges it for a lie. I was reading recently an article entitled World Christian, or it's a, a book called a World Christian Encyclopedia. David Barrett and the editors who put it together some time ago. It's really a comparative study of churches and religions from, 30, from A.D. 30 to what they say is 2200, which would be pretty close to our time in the future. They say there are 19 major world religions which are subdivided into a total of 270 large religious groups and many other smaller ones. 34,000 separate Christian groups have been identified in the world. Over Half of them are independent churches that are not interested in linking with big denominations, they say. They put together some interesting information on these religions, and based on that information, or they base that information on, on the census and on public opinion, which I find very interesting. And so in light of that data, they say a person is considered to be of a particular religion if they say they are of that faith. So all they have to do is say, yeah, I'm of that faith, and that's the religion they belong to. At least that's how they put it in their stats. And so according to that, they say 75% of adults in both the U.S. and Canada are Christians. Many, of course, they say, conservative Christians believe that one has to be born again. We would fit into that group. We are those who would say you have to be born again in order to even have that title. So using that definition, you immediately lose 40% of those people. There's only 35% of the people in the United States and Canada that would be even considered Christians. And of course, that difference of definition is can be even tweaked more as you get even within the conservative Christian movement of which we would be part of, depending on your definition of what a Christian is. So... Depending on how tightly you put that reality of what a Christian is by way of, of, of definition, and our definition needs to be coming from the authoritative Word of God because the only definition that matters is God's. 
And when you do that, you have then a difference somewhere between 0.1 and 75% of the population, so somewhere in there. There are a lot of religions in the world. They put together a big chart, by the way, and they, they said Christianity began in back when the Christ was here. The sacred text of where that came about was the scriptures we have. They say there's uh, two billion or yeah, two billion fifteen million Christians, thirty three percent, and they say it's dropping. Islam has 1,215,000,000 over the world, began in 622, and they say it's 20% and growing. The other largest group under that is no religion at all. We have no religion. By the way, I, I, I saw a report recently about New Hampshire and the thing New Hampshire hates the most. It was a, a picture of the, of the United States at each 50 state and what the state hated the most. And some was, I hate Coke, some was, I hate Pepsi, some was... We, we hate chocolate and all these other kinds of things. You know what New Hampshire hates? This was listed on this thing, this picture. The number one thing New Hampshire hates? God. God. No religion. 15% is no religion and that is dropping. Hinduism, 13%. Buddhism, 6%. Atheists, they have listed on here as a religion because it is. It's a worship of self. 4%, Chinese folk religion, 4%, and it goes on and on and on and on and on, all the way down. That's the, that's the wisdom of men. The wisdom of men, they profess to be wise. And many of the professed wise in our world today will let you, uh, will tell you that all of those stats just indicate that man is on an upward ascent to God. Do you see? Look at the world. Look at all the religions. Look at all the people out there. They really all want to worship. And they're all on this ascent toward God. In fact, some within quote-unquote evangelicalism will say, we're all on the same road. We'll all get to the same place in the end. doesn't matter what religion you have. But it's clear from the witness of the Word of God, it's clear from the authority that matters that the very that very fact that there are so many religions in the world is truly indicates not an incline but a decline and a downward movement away from God, not toward God. That's what it indicates. So there's a real movement away from truth, not toward righteousness. And so, in direct contrast to what the wisdom of man tells us. The religion of man does not in any way shine as a bright light, but rather it's a reflection of man's total darkness. That's what it is. You say, why? Because man has turned his back on God. He has begun to create substitute gods. Those that will soothe his guilty conscience. Those that will salve the ringing bell of the conscience that God put there and the knowledge of the real God that keeps ringing in them that they want to have nothing to do with them. And it will draw him not closer but farther from the one true God. Verse 23 graphically portrays 
the wickedness of the idolatry that lies in the heart of all the other religions of the world. Every other religion not based upon a reverent response to the revelation of the one true God. This is the reality. This is the result. This is the portrayal of that idolatry. So what happens then when men worship other gods? What happens? Verse 23 says, They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. You remember that I told us that the glory of the Lord is the essence of His character. When you read in the Scriptures the the glory of God, oftentimes, and, and I think most often, it's reflecting the reality of all the total essence of who God is in His very character. The reflection of that reality. When Moses wanted to see God, God said, You cannot look at my face. No man can see my face and live. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will let my backside pass by. And, the very, and, and, then, and then in the text, the, the characteristics of God are listed there. Not an exhaustive list, but certainly enough to represent the, the glowing reality of who Christ is, or, or who God the Father is, who the essence of the Godhead is. In other words, his attributes as well as his self-revelation, which is seen through his attributes, that is the glory of God. The word here, man exchanged the glory of God. The word exchanged is the word halaxon in the original language. It means to, to make different or change it. To make something different. You might remember the, the, the Greek word some time ago, alas, when we were in 1 Corinthians, and I, and I talked about alas and kainos, the two words for another. Right? Alas is, is another, but another of a different kind. That is the root word for this word, exchange. It is different. They've changed it to another, but not another of the same kind, another of a different kind. They've exchanged the true God for another of a different kind. That's the reality of this word. This is what man has done. That word and that principle of of change, that principle of changing something is seen a lot of places in the Scriptures. And And I just want to take us and show us a few of those because I think it's important that we understand this exchange. Uh, In Acts chapter 6, you get the story of Stephen, right? Stephen is being arrested. He's, He's been preaching Jesus. His boldness is... Preaching Jesus and, 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 and his message is so powerful. It's the only message he ever preached. So powerful that the people are, are so irritated about that. And they are beginning to make accusations against Stephen uh, about his preaching. And in Acts chapter 6, it's interesting to me what they say he has done. 
In Acts chapter 6, verse, beginning in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, both uh, Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and argued with Stephen, and they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. Now, that wasn't Stephen's wisdom. He just preached in the Word of God. They, they couldn't, they didn't have a chance against God. God's speaking absolute authoritative truth. They're trying to spew their wisdom, and they have no chance. And so then, verse 11, they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. You know, you know what they're saying? He's changed it. He's changed it. He's changed what was true and what is right. And he's changed it to something that isn't right. And so they stir up the people. And Stephen is drug out of town and eventually stoned. Of course, we know the very one who's writing Romans was standing there that day, holding the coats of those who are throwing the rocks. He's preaching another God, they were saying. It's the same principle that Paul was speaking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to turn there, but remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We ought to be familiar with that chapter. We studied it. It's all about the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ, Christians were going to be raised. We as Christians are going to be raised from the dead. And Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church and, and saying to them, you, you are, you're not thinking about that. You need to be thinking about that. This is why part of your, you're having part of the trouble in the church. You're, you're fighting against that very reality and the resurrection we have in Christ's future. And he speaks of the change that's going to take place. This principle of being different. Our bodies are going to be changed. And remember I mentioned this when we were studying through this in verse 51 and 52. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be Changed. The idea of something totally different. Totally different. It's going to be another. We'll, we'll be another body, but we're not going to be the same. We're going to be totally different. You remember what took place with the Hebrew people in Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, the, the history of the golden calf. And Moses is on the mountain and the people are wondering, what happened to Moses? And they go to Aaron and say, we want a God. We need a God. You need to give us a God. And Aaron stupidly says, give me your gold. And they fashion a golden calf and the people begin to worship it. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for that which was a four-footed animal. And then they were warned by God following that very event in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 15. So watch yourselves carefully, God said, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. You didn't see a form of me. 
so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. Don't make an idol of anything. Then they are indicted by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 11, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods at all? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. You say, why do you emphasize that? Because in Romans 1, I think when we read the word exchanged, when we go to Romans 1 and, and you simply in your own mind as a 21st century person who knows Jesus Christ, or maybe you're unsaved, you read the Bible and you read the word exchanged, or maybe some of your translations even use the word change. When we read that, we have a tendency to think that changed means an all-out refusal of God. In other words, to exchange the glory of God is just to put God aside and have no God. As if God were somehow non-existent like an atheist. And we think sometimes, so that if someone simply says they worship God, so that if someone says they call Him the God, they, they worship God and they even call Him, they say it's the God of the Bible. And we easily accept it to be the true God when they say that. When, in reality, they may have altered the God of the Bible even in the slightest way. That's what change is. Simply altering in the most minute way. When we do that, guess what? We're no longer worshiping the God of the Bible. We are worshiping a God of our own making. We have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for something less. So exchanged here doesn't mean that you have some actual idol in your home, sitting on your mantle, out in your yard, little, little, uh, shrine somewhere where you bow down to that shrine and you consider that God no. Idolatry is simply in the simplest form just this disregarding God's authority. Disregarding God's authority. Disregarding His word in the simplest way. That is idolatry. We exchange the glory of God for something that is less. And God's wrath is justified against all men through his own willful rebellion against God. Man has altered the very characteristics of God in his own mind and heart as God has shown himself as God has divined himself 
man has taken that and refused it altogether and developed something of his own making, disregarded God and disregarded what God has defined and declared himself to be. And through that altering man has created a God of his own making. It's not a mistake. It's not a mistake that God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. It's not a mistake that the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. See, although that was a direct commandment to the nation of Israel in the time of history, it is a direct commandment to all of us. And Israel didn't fare so well. They followed after gods of their own making and even accepted the gods of the pagan nations around them. In fact, before Israel's exile, the prophet Isaiah exposed their wickedness. He exposed their foolish idolatry that they had corrupted God. Here's what he said. Isaiah 44, verse 9 to 17. Just listen to this. This is incredible. And, and when you listen to this, think about your own heart. Here's what he said. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to the terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with the hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. And from the rest of it he makes a god, his idol bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my God. Israel exchanged the glory of God for that which was inglorious, that which was shameful, that which was corruptible. They exchanged the glory of God for a cheap imitation. They had altered God's definition of himself. That's what they did. God's word, here's what God said, and they, in their own mind and heart, said that isn't enough. 
That isn't the God we want. And so they fashioned a God of their own making. They even attached His name to it. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what men do. They turn their back on the Scriptures. They turn their back on the God of the Scriptures as He has revealed Himself. And they say, ah, it's worthless. It really means nothing. It's no big deal. They make something different. Something similar. Something religious. Something to worship. But it's something by their own definition. And in the end, it is not the true God at all. It is a God of another kind. It is a new, idolatrous religion. And what's the first image that they substitute for God? They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. This goes all the way back to the third point that we had last week. Man has elevated himself to the place of being his own God. He is his own God. I remember reading several years ago and hearing other preachers say this sarcastically in the past. It has been said God made man in his image and man turned around and returned the favor. Every form of worship in the world is just that. It's not the worship of the one living and true God. It is simply self-worship. That's what it is. Every religion other than true Christianity is just self-worship. It doesn't matter how you package it. It doesn't matter how pretty bows you put on it. It doesn't matter the kind of music you sing in it. It doesn't matter the kind of prayers you might have through it. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how far it is in the in the, in the world to get to. None of that matters. It is all self-worship. It doesn't matter if the idolatry comes in the form of a wooden or metal object sitting on the mantel shelf or sitting in a home in some kind of way. It doesn't matter if you are like those worshipers who worship Satan himself. None of that matters. If the idol being worshipped is made up of unbiblical thinking about life, or if it is some different form of a gospel that is touted as the real gospel, in one way or another, it doesn't matter what it is, in one way or another, it is all idolatry. All idolatry is self-worship. All self-worship is idolatry. No matter how blatant, no matter how subtle. The Apostle John reminds us in the book of Revelation that the epitome of self-worship will be seen in the Antichrist. The Antichrist will demand that all the world bow and worship him. That's the epitome of of idol worship. That's the epitome of self-worship. And yet John warns in 1 John that even now many antichrists have gone out into the world. The epitome is the antichrist saying, you you must bow down to me. And yet even now many have gone out into the world. 1 John 2 verse 18. Antichrist. Many anti-Christian. That's antichrist. Anti-Christian against Christ. And the greatest idol of all, listen, the greatest idol of all, this might shock us, 
The greatest idol of all is not the image that made the idol. That, that, that it's made in. It's not the image. That's not the greatest idol of all. The greatest idol of all is the heart of self-worship that concocts it. I was remembering this week as I was studying King Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps the greatest king in all of the ancient world. He became so enamored with himself, so enamored with his supposed accomplishments that he ignored even the warnings of God's people. The warnings of the prophet Daniel. And he proclaimed this, quote, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built? Is this not Babylon the great? I'm the one who did this. It was my power and the glory of my majesty that made this happen. That's self-worship. Outright idolatry. Daniel had warned him. Here's what Daniel said to him. Or here's what the, the book of Daniel says. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying. See, the matter of authority, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, here's your supposed wisdom and authority and your professions, and here's authority. Word came from heaven and said, to you it is declared. Those are frightening words. To you it is declared. Sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind. And your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you. Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And He is the one who bestows on, on, on He bestows power and honor and greatness and whatever He wants on whomever He wants to. Not you at all. Verse 33 of that same chapter says, Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Isn't it interesting? The worship of self. And God gives us a graphic illustration that even man in his worship of self and his Exchanging the glory of God for that which is incorruptible. Here is a graphic illustration where God by way takes a man and even makes him look like the very things he's worshiping. Eating grass like the beasts even though he was a man. And, and even taking on the characteristics of a bird because he cannot even get his hair cut. If we learn anything from past history, folks... We learn anything from the past of others who have acted foolishly in this way. And we ought to learn that God is righteously jealous for His glory. Righteously jealous. The late, wonderful writer and theologian A.W. Tozer has correctly observed in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy where idolatry begins. Here's what he says. 
quote, idolatry begins in the mind. Idolatry begins in the mind. Now get this. How? When we pervert or exchange the idea of God for something other than what he really is. Let me say that again. Idolatry begins in the mind when we pervert or exchange the idea of God for something other than what he really is. Now let that sit on your mind and your heart for a moment. Because here you are, sitting here listening to this week after week after week after week. You go home, you have your own Bible study and your own passages of Scripture week after week after week. You pray to God. You live your life in 21st century world and you hear these things and you say, well, this doesn't necessarily include me because I'm saved. Really? Really? Maybe not in an ultimate sense, in the sense in which you're going to go to hell because you've exchanged the glory of God for something that's completely incorruptible or corruptible. But have you in any way in your mind perverted or exchanged the idea of God for something that is not Him? In your practical living, is the Word of God and what God says authoritative? Or is it the words and wisdom of men that are authoritative? When science speaks, who do you listen to louder, God or science? When the politician speaks, who do you listen to, the Word of God or the world? Who speaks louder? And you can know what's speaking louder in your life by looking at your life and looking at how you make decisions and looking at how you think about things. It begins in the mind. And this is what Paul is saying. Mankind pays homage to all kinds of idols that resemble man and every other creature that were ever created. Why? Because they have refused God. They have refused what God has said concerning Himself. They have refused what God has said concerning them, and they have altered it for something that is not God at all. I know. In a group this loud, there's some somebody sitting here going, Yeah, you know, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, I hear what this is saying. I, I read these words, but, I, you know, I, I don't know if I buy it. You know what you've done right there? Exchanged the absolute truth of an unchanging God for the wisdom of your own corruptible thinking. And that is proof alone that you are under the wrath of God. You have refused what God has said concerning Himself. You have refused what God has said concerning you. And for that, God will hold you eternally accountable. I have to caution each of us lest we think we are above any of this. I don't want any of us to go away thinking that idolatry is the worship of just an object. That's not. 
There have always been those who worship the actual object. That surely is a form of idolatry, but there are many more, many, many more that worship the idols that are not objects at all. But they're thoughts of God that are not God's thoughts. Be careful as Christians because even we can be caught worshiping wealth, worshiping health, worshiping pleasure and prestige. Our hearts can be filled with all kinds of other things of worship and sports and (coughs) physical attraction and educational attainments, whatever it is. All of those, each one of us from time to time gladly embraces. And that ought to tell us that we've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible for that which is corruptible. Many even go to the point of serving those things and their faith has found shipwreck. They, they show themselves to not be genuine at all. You see, when we desire and have a desire for those things, when that overshadows the desire to have God's glory reflected in us, to have the mind and heart of God reflected as a, as a life in every area of our lives. It doesn't matter even to the mundane realities of life as Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, it doesn't matter what it is, do it to the glory of God. When, when the desire for those other things that, that are redefining and altering and even negating what God has clearly said we ought to be doing and what He has defined himself to be when when anything else is overshadowing any of that, then that idea or that philosophy or that object is an idol of our lives and it is something God hates. God is judging man in an eternal sense because man has turned his back on the only true and revealed God. Because man is naturally inclined to worship, God has created him that way. He was made for the worship of God, and yet because God or man has rejected God, he makes for himself to be God. He decides which God he's going to worship, and in the end, he's just worshiping self. Why? Because instead of acknowledging God for who he is, Man has sinfully surmised that God is just like him. Just like him. So man's religion is the result. You realize that? Man's religion is a result not of man trying to find God. See, that's what the world thinks. All these religions are out there because man is just groping for God. No, 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 no. All of the world's religions other than Christianity are there not because they're groping for God. They're not trying to find God. It's the outcome of their personal refusal to acknowledge God. That's why they're there. And all people have a God consciousness. Even if they say, I don't know and I don't think there is a God. They have a God consciousness. Why? Because God put it there. 
To deny that is to deny what God said, which just is idolatry and self-worship. God is justified in his wrath against man. In fact, God's delay of his ultimate eternal wrath is simply a further demonstration of his eternal kindness. That's all it is. Paul's going to tell us in the next chapter these very words. Do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, Guess what's happening? You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's what you're doing. By not turning to God now, by not running to Him and begging for mercy, you are saying to God, you don't exist, I know better, I will worship self, and you don't recognize the kindness of God and His patience and forbearance and even letting you reject Him. And so you refuse to repent and you will walk out the doors today in your unrepentant heart, fast on your way to hell. Our Kent Hughes rightly stated, as Christians, we must ever keep before us the eternal power and divine nature of God as He has revealed in creation. We must always consciously strive to remember His majestic transcendence and His otherness, or we will fall into idolatry. He went on to say, quite frankly, even those of us in the evangelical tradition with its valid and needed emphasis on the availability of God in Christ are in danger of this form of idolatry. Because very often we hear God addressed in casual terms that would scandalize some of our earthly employers. Sometimes we hear music that so sentimentalizes Christ that He is emptied of His divinity need to be careful. We must never address God with anything but the most humble attitude. We must never jest about God or about divine things. We must keep our creatureliness and His supremacy ever before us. Telling words concerning God's judgment. Words we must heed. When man refuses to acknowledge the incorruptible God, the only outcome is man to, for man to elevate himself as his own God. And the only thing left when man does that is darkness and hopelessness. Why? Why is that the only thing left? Because God says, have it your way. We'll get into that next time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.
words this morning for us from your word are frighteningly poignant. Not only for those who sit here this morning in their smugness and say they're okay with you when they will not repent, have not repented and reject your son Jesus Christ, but also for each and every one who has professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and yet willfully and willingly each and every day we realize we do not follow your word. The times when we selfishly, not ignorantly, but really overtly know what your word says and we don't follow it. That simply is to say that we are the authority and you are not. We alter it to our own convenience, to our own idolatrous ways. Were it not for grace, we certainly know where we'd be. We would be, as the song says, wandering down a lonely road to nowhere with our salvation up to us. But thanks be to your kindness and mercy to your grace, to your patience and forbearance that we can have life in you. We can actually worship the true God. Thank you for showing us our true condition. Thank you for showing us what we've been saved from if we know Christ and what we need to be saved from if we don't. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. For without him, all men are hopeless. And so we pray. We trust that you will save those whom you've chosen. That you will cause them to repent. That you will draw them to yourself. That you will crush their pride. Whatever way needs be. That you and you alone would be worshipped and glorified. That your authority would reign in their life. Each moment of every day. So that you would be praised and honored so that your glory would be seen and reflected in us. Thank you for these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.